1: Ignition sequence start. Welcome to Government's Future Frontiers. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, one on which we've come to depend for almost everything we do, space. We'll be examining the challenges, the opportunities, the pitfalls and the benefits of all things space-related. Government's Future Frontiers from Deloitte Insights. Remember to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode.
2: Tim McVeigh had memorized large portions of the Declaration of Independence, not just the famous part, the the first few lines, but the parts where Thomas Jefferson is justifying violent rebellion against the British. Those lines uh, from the Declaration of Independence, not familiar to most of us, certainly not to me, were also invoked by people on January 6th as part of their justification to attack the Capitol. I, 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 as you say, I don't know exactly what to make of it. Certainly, it doesn't discredit the the framers of our country, the the founding fathers, the framers, because their words have been misused, but their words have been misused in this particular way for a long time, and and I think that's worthy of note.
3: I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 25th, 2023. At 9.02 a.m. on April 19th, 1995, a bomb built by Timothy McVeigh exploded in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. 168 people died, and hundreds more were injured in what remains the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in U.S. history. Jeffrey Toobin has a new book about the bombing and trial called Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh, and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Toobin and I discussed the new and revealing information his book draws on concerning McVeigh's motivations and trial strategy, Attorney General Merrick Garland's consequential role in the McVeigh trial, and the long-tail impact of the trial on right-wing domestic terrorism in the United States, including the January 6th attacks on Congress. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 25th, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Jeff, the Oklahoma City bombing occurred on April 19th, 1995. So the first question is, why write a book about Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma bombing, McVeigh's trial, et cetera, today?
2: Well, there, there are really two answers to that, Jack. One is I covered the trials of McVeigh and Nichols, which took place in Denver in 1997. So the story has been rattling around in my head for, for a long time. But there was something, a much more specific trigger to why I started doing this, which is in October of 2020, as I suspect you'll recall, and lots of people will remember, the FBI arrested a group of people who were plotting to kidnap Governor Whitmer of Michigan. And uh, they were affiliated with the Michigan militia. I remembered from covering the Oklahoma City bombing trial that Terry Nichols, the the co-defendant to Tim McVeigh was uh, from Michigan and affiliated with the Michigan militia. And I started looking into the modern story and I saw how similar the motivations and the views were. A handful of weeks later, January 6th happened, where I again thought that the political views of the violent right-wing extremists were similar to McVeigh and Nichols. And I decided to just go back to the whole story. I I happened at that point to to find out that um, there was this incredible resource at the Briscoe Center at the University of Texas, which no one had looked at, um, which was Stephen Jones, McVeigh's lawyer, had donated every scrap of paper uh, in his representation to the library. So, you know, those are the combination of factors that led me to write the book.
3: Okay, so I want to follow up on all of that, and I want to put off until later the relationship between the 1995 event and modern right-wing domestic terrorism. And uh, we'll talk also about that treasure trove you found uh, at the University of Texas, was it? Yes. So let's first start off by just, there are a lot of people who are listening who might not know much about the Oklahoma bombing or who Timothy McVeigh is, who Terry Nichols is. Can you just give us a sketch of what happened?
2: Sure. Sure. Uh, on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety-five, Timothy McVeigh, uh, having rented a rider truck uh, in Junction City, Kansas, set off a fuse uh, on a truck which he had parked in front of the Alfred P. Murrah uh, Federal Building in Oklahoma City, and he scampered off to a getaway car that he had uh, that, that he had secreted behind uh, behind a building nearby. Uh, the bomb went off at 9.02 a.m. 168 people were killed, uh, including 19 children. I think something a lot of people remember is that there was a daycare center on the second floor uh, uh, of the federal building, and 15 of the children who were killed there were, were in the daycare center. It's a particularly horrific part of the story. Terry Nichols, McVeigh's partner, had helped him load the truck with the improvised explosives, but he was not there uh, in Oklahoma City on on April nineteenth. McVeigh picked April nineteenth because it was the second anniversary of the FBI's disastrous raid on uh, the Waco compound of the Branch Davidians, and that was part, a major part, but certainly not the only part of McVeigh's motivation as a as a gesture of protest against that that action by the FBI, but. The story of why he did it um, is is very much at the heart of, of Homegrown, and I think um, I have a somewhat revisionist take on why uh, McVeigh acted the way he did, based on uh, these new sources that I was uh, able to find.
3: Okay, so lay out that revisionist take, and then I have some questions about it.
2: Well, the the, the take is that you know McVeigh, to the extent he's remembered, is often described as anti government and a lone wolf, both of which I think are more wrong than right. Uh, He was not anti-all government. He was not an anarchist. He was not someone who was a true lone wolf, like Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who was active at the same time and whose story intersects McVeigh in peculiar ways. McVeigh was part of a movement. McVeigh was part of the right-wing extremist movement of the the mid-90s, He was someone who was a regular listener to Rush Limbaugh. He was a uh, a devoted listener to Bill Cooper, a shortwave radio uh, extremist. He was someone who read the publications of of The Right Wing, The Soldier of Fortune, uh, The Spotlight. And perhaps most important, he was as motivated... Uh, I mean, a lot of people know he was motivated by his anger about Waco, but he was just as angry about something that happened on September 13th, 1994, which was Bill Clinton signing the assault weapons ban. He was absolutely obsessed with fears that the government would, the federal government would take individuals' firearms away. And the specific inspiration to bomb this building in this way came from this terrible novel called The Turner Diaries, where uh, Earl er- Turner, who was the hero, in no- uh, the hero a- and protagonist of The Turner Diaries, um, in-, in a frenzy of racist and anti-Semitic violence, sets off a bomb, a-, a truck bomb outside the FBI building in Washington, which in turn sets off a rebellion against the federal government this is exactly what McVeigh wanted to replicate. That's why he set off a bomb uh, in the federal government. But the core of my revisionist view is that he was not some loner, not some anti-government person. He was a right-wing extremist.
3: Right. Okay. I want to ask you about that. First, let me just say that perhaps the most amazing and important thing about the book is that you are, as you suggested earlier, you have access to these extraordinary records. So you have the intimate communications, and there were lots of them between McVeigh and his legal team, lots of recordings and, and writings and the like. So you really are able to reconstruct, I think, better than we've known to date, a lot better. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but a lot better what motivated him because he talked about it a lot. But let me just ask you, I mean, not a lone wolf, but just to be just to try to get a better handle on this. He also wasn't a leader of this movement. He was clearly influenced by it. I mean, you show... The Turner Diaries, Diaries especially, he, he was clearly influenced by this right-wing revolutionary movement. But he wasn't I – would, I, would, I, I came away thinking he was somewhere between a lone wolf and uh, – he was definitely part of the movement. He considered himself simpatico with the movement, but he seemed more or less to be acting on his, on his own.
2: Uh, he was, but that was not for lack of trying. I mean, you know, one of the key differences between uh, 1995 and let's say January 6th is the existence of the Internet and and, uh, social media. McVeigh said to his lawyers in a quote that that really stuck with me um, is he said to his lawyers, you know, I know there is an army out there, but I was never able to find it. And McVeigh did circulate at gun shows which was, I think logically, a place where he could look for allies. But he didn't have the personality, the temperament to recruit other people. He did recruit Terry Nichols. He did have a, uh, a, a friend uh, in, in Arizona named Michael Fortier who was aware of the blot, although not a, a participant in it. But he didn't have the tools to uh, recruit others and find like-minded people. That's the reason why the Internet is so important. If you look at January 6th, if you look at the plot to kidnap uh, Governor Whitmer, which was organized over f- Facebook private chats, uh, if you look at the extremists who shot up the Walmart in, in El Paso or the grocery store in Buffalo or the synagogue in Pittsburgh or, or Dylan Roof in South Carolina, all of them were radicalized and found allies uh, on the internet. McVeigh didn't have access to that. And I think that's the big difference. And, and, and you're right, he didn't have the allies, but he didn't have the tools that later people had.
3: And yet he seemed to think, and I found this almost unbelievable to the point of crazy, but I'm not in this mindset. He seemed to think quite firmly or hope that this event would spark a revolution. I mean, he literally believed, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that this bombing, or he hoped, that the bombing would, through some mechanisms, which kind of re- remain mysterious to me, set off a revolution in the face of these things going on in the country that he detested.
2: I, <laughs> for, fortunately, uh, he, he he was wrong about that. But there is no doubt um, that he he believed that, and that came right out of the Turner Diaries, because that's what happens in the Turner Diaries is that the the truck bomb at the FBI sets off this counter counter revolution. You know, I, I think Jack M- McVeigh was certainly not insane in any legal sense. I mean, he he was he was rational. He he was someone who knew who knew what he was doing, but I mean, he, he was evil and he was deluded. And he was twisted, and I think part of what happened in 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 his own mindset is that the the intricate planning for assembling the ingredients and choosing the target and 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 figuring out how to make a bomb the process took over for him, and the the ultimate goal and what might happen afterwards I think receded some somewhat but you know i I, I share your befuddlement that, you know, how he thought this would lead to a a counter-revolution, but he did.
3: So you open the book, the prologue is called 1776, and you basically show that McVeigh and other right-of-center domestic terrorists, both then and since, including the ones who invaded the Capitol on January 6th, were inspired by and invoked the rhetoric of 1776. And there's no doubt you document that that's true. I wasn't sure what to make of this. What, what are we to make of this?
2: There's a, a wonderful book that, that just won the Pulitzer Prize by Jefferson Cowie um, called Freedom's Dominion about uh, rebellions against the federal government. He focuses on a specific area of, of Alabama, uh, a county that turns out to be George Wallace's home county and and he talks about how the, the the rhetoric of the founding fathers is something that ha- has been found to be useful to right-wing extremists uh, throughout throughout american history as for what we're uh, obliged to make of it
1: you know i don't really know
2: other than the fact that it, it it's it's a real constant in this right-wing world that you know it is not a coincidence that they all fly the Gadsden flag, which is that yellow flag with the snake that says, "You know, don't don't tread on me." You know, Tim McVeigh had memorized large portions of the Declaration of Independence, not just the famous part, the 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 first few lines, but the parts where Thomas Jefferson is justifying violent rebellion against the British. Those lines uh, from the Declaration of Independence not familiar to most of us, certainly not to me, were also invoked by people on January 6 as part of their justification to uh, attack the Capitol. I, 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 as you say, I don't know exactly what to make of it. Certainly, it doesn't discredit the the framers of our country, the, the founding fathers, the framers, because their words have been misused. But their words have been misused in this particular way for a long time and and i think that's worthy of note
3: and there is this there is this central idea in the declaration i'll quote from it that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends basically the consent of the governed it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government and i assume that that's one of the lines that he was inspired by
2: that's the main one. That's the main one. And, um, y- you hear that. And, and that one again was, uh, invoked uh, on January 6th, you know, <laughs> the perversity of, you know, I, I, it needs hardly be elaborated that, you know, that line does not justify setting off a bomb in front of, you know, with a building full of people. Those those words do not justify attacking the Capitol on January 6th, but they are malleable words that impressionable, already motivated people can use to their own ends.
3: Okay, so you do a great job of explaining the events leading up to the bombing, McVeigh's thinking, how he built the bomb, all the backs and force of that. But I want to skip to just after the bombing and how the federal government uh, responded, and Merrick Garland has a, an important role here. And I have to say that in reading it, I was both, I learned, I thought he was more involved and I thought he was less involved in some respects. So I knew he was involved. So tell us what his role was. He had a very important role at the beginning, especially.
2: He, he did. He was, uh, his title was, I mean, you, you're a former uh, DOJ official. You can probably say this more than I, better than I can, because you know the, the, these are, well-known. He was the principal associate deputy attorney general. So he was the top political aide to the deputy attorney general, who was a woman named Jamie Gorelick at the time. But his job was a very important one, though the title is a word salad to most of us who haven't worked in in Washington's uh, main justice. Jamie Gorelick's job uh, was to run the Department of Justice while Janet Reno, the Attorney General, did the public duties that are expected of, of the Attorney General. As the top aide to the person running the department, that's a big deal job. Uh, and Merrick Garland, who was forty two at the time, he left a partnership in Arnold and Porter. You know, he'd been both an assistant U.S. Attorney and a a partner in Arnold and Porter, Supreme Court law clerk. Weirdly, Jack, you will perhaps appreciate this more, more than some. I, I didn't realize until I started working on this book how weirdly parallel his career has been to John Roberts.
3: And, and indeed, you describe them something like as the two legal legal eagles of their generation.
1: Basically,
2: I, I, I do. And and you know they they're both from outside Chicago. They both went to Harvard College, majored in history, summa cum laude, Harvard Law School both, you know, on the Harvard Law Review, both clerked for the same appeals court judge, Henry Friendly. And at that point, they sort of took their political views in, in different directions.
3: And they both they both went to the D.C. Circuit, and maybe you said that, and they both were nominated for the yeah. Supreme Court. I one. Mean, it's, one, it's, one of them made it. it,
2: it one, one of them made it, as I think we know. But when, when the Oklahoma City bombing happened on April 19th, Janet Reno recognized right away that someone needed to be in charge on the ground in, in Oklahoma City because there were lots of federal agencies involved. And, you know, there was tremendous chaos because the U.S. Attorney's Office had been damaged in the blast. And Jamie Gorelick sent Garland, and he was the official in charge of the investigation for the first month or so. Um, He he handled the arraignment of McVeigh, the initial preliminary hearing for both McVeigh and Nichols, but he ultimately did not try the case, somewhat to his disappointment, because Jamie Gorelick said, this Unabomber investigation is a mess. I need you to take charge of the Unabomber investigation. So he was brought back to uh, Washington to run the investigation that ultimately led to the arrest of Ted Kaczynski the following year.
3: But he made very important decisions at the outset that set the tone and style of the government's approach. And you make a big deal out of this, and I want to talk about that. So what was his what was Garland's view? And explain who Lance Ito is.
2: Well, see again, you know, one one of the fun things about doing recent history, as I have frequently done in my career, is that people, including me Forget what's going on at the same time. You know, when you focus on the Oklahoma City bombing, you know it took place on April 19th, 1995. What you forget, or what I certainly forgot, was that in January of 1995, the O.J. Simpson criminal case started. Now, I recognize that because I was in Los Angeles covering it at the time, and that's where I was when the bombing happened. But that was a national phenomenon. And to Merrick Garland's eyes, not, not a good one. And uh, he was deeply offended by the way that trial was being conducted. He didn't like the way the lawyers, including Marsha Clark and Chris Darden for the prosecution, Johnny Cochran, Robert Shapiro for the defense, and Lancito, who was the judge in the case, became big celebrities and, and in many respects, sort of media uh, figures. Garland wanted the Oklahoma City bombing case tried exclusively in the courtroom, which was ultimately moved to Denver and a change of venue. But, you know, his aversion to a high profile prosecution was something that was had a lot of influence in how that case was tried. And I argue in Homegrown also tells you something about how he has acted as attorney general of the United States.
3: Right. So this is this may be a point where I think I disagree with you in the book. You, I mean, you basically say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, Garland wanted to try it narrowly on the case without either in the courtroom or outside of the courtroom tying it to these larger trends and these larger forces going on in American society. And he did that, and I'm just paraphrasing what you said, and you can correct any of this if I'm wrong. He did that because, you know, in part, it was a response to not wanting to have the circus of the O.J. Simpson trial. But my guess is he would have done it the same way had there been no O.J. Simpson trial. That's just who Merrick Garland was and what he thought should happen. But isn't it? The, wasn't it the right call? I mean, you, you basically suggest I think it wasn't the right call. If what what exactly should he have done more? I mean, it seems like you wanted him to, in public before before the trial, to speak. You compare what he did to what Bill Clinton did. Clinton you know, talked in great detail, and you go into this in public, about the dangers of white of right-wing extremism. You show that he had experienced it as governor and had a lot of experience with it as governor of Arkansas. He spoke out against it at least at first, and then you note he dropped off a bit, or if not completely. But it seems like you wanted Garland to do the same thing, and I just don't see why that was Garland's role. I don't see that. Well,
2: I, I think you, you put your finger on, on an important point I do make in the book, which was – that Bill Clinton got this story right from the beginning. And I, I was fortunate to interview both Garland and Clinton uh, to in writing Homegrown. And I learned, to my surprise, I just didn't know this, that Clinton had a lot of experience with the militias in when he was governor of Arkansas and to this day remembers those events very clearly. And at a time, right after the bombing, when a lot of people thought it was somehow tied to islamic radicalism the first world trade center bombing which was tied to islamic radicalism had just taken place in 1993 clinton said privately in the oval office i know who did this it was the militias and he was right and and he spoke out in a very prescient and appropriate way the the point about about garland is not so much that he that he was wrong in 1995 it's more that he was wrong in 2021 and 22 and 23 is that I I don't think there was necessarily a better way to try the McVeigh and Nichols cases. I I do think they could have put it more in political context. They could have educated the public more about uh, what was really involved, but it's not so much what uh, Garland did in 1995 that I object to. It's the lesson he took from what happened in 1995 that that he has taken and used as attorney general.
3: Okay, I want to come back to that later, but let me just press you one more time on this, and then we can move on to something else. I mean, I think in parts, yes, you're most concerned about what's going on now with January 6th, and I'll, we'll come back to that. But in parts, you say that Garland is largely responsible for one of the themes of the book is McVeigh is today seen as this aberration, as, as not part of a broader movement that we should have been more aware of, and that he's seen, as you said at, you know, at the beginning, he's perceived, and you challenge this as a lone wolf, and that you know his ties to this larger movement, and you even say this was true of you and you were covering the trial to some extent back in the day. But you kind of lay that in part at Maren Garland's feet. And I just don't see that. He just seems to me of all the people and all the institutions that should have been emphasizing these broader trends and these going on in the country and the broader dangers going on in the country. It seems like the last institution that should do that are the people prosecuting the case. Now, I guess your point is, and I'll be quiet after this, I guess your point is that this was an opportunity that the whole country was watching. The whole country was watching this trial. So that was the opportunity to teach this lesson. But it just seems to me that the Justice Department is the last institution that should have been doing that. There are lots of other institutions, the president, the press, et cetera, that could have been doing this. But it just seems to me that DOJ was not the institution.
2: Well, I mean, I I guess I do disagree with you to a certain extent. And although we're dealing in some subtleties here, but, you know, It it is the job of prosecutors to to prove motive in cases. Now, when you have a crime as egregious as this setting, you know, setting off a bomb, Garland made the decision that, you know, the, the we don't need to prove prove much about motive. We just need to prove that he did it. He had, you know, explosive residue on his shirt. He was arrested very near the scene of the crime. End of story. I think. The, the trial would have had a more productive legacy if the, the prosecution had spent more time on the issue of motive. Um, we're, we're talking about subtleties here, uh, I, and, and I do think, I mean, I, I, I get your point, and it is difficult to argue with the result. certainly in the, in the McVeigh trial. Uh, the Nichols trial was a much tougher case for the government. Ter- Terry Nichols was not there. He was acquitted of of the bombing itself, although he was convicted of the conspiracy uh, to commit the bombing. Uh, I I, I just think, you know, the the Justice Department, you know, trials do serve a public education function as well. And obviously, uh, you can't use them to introduce inadmissible evidence. The rules of evidence uh, are are ultimately going to govern what can and can't be put in. But the issue of motive is legitimate under the rules of evidence. And I do think that the government could have done more of that, including in, in how they wrote the indictment.
3: Okay. One more point on this and I'll give you the last word. There was a point in the trial. I can't remember where I learned this from your book where one of the prosecutors was talking about motive and and they did introduce evidence of the right-wing literature found in his car. I think the Turner diaries was known in the, in the trial and more, but at one point, the prosecutor said something like, "You know Mr. McVeigh is entitled to his beliefs, however nefarious I find them. The First Amendment gives him the right to have these nefarious beliefs and even perhaps to articulate them. What they don't permit him to do is to obviously to kill people on the basis of these beliefs or something like that, but that kind of got at for me the trickiness of of making of tying this crime." For purposes of the, of the trial, not for other purposes, but for purposes of the trial of tying it too much to these broader movements and to his beliefs.
2: Well, I, and, and I think, you know, that that was a very uh, appropriate thing for the prosecutors to say in the trial is that, you know, you're a lot you're entitled to all sorts of beliefs that most of us find repellent in the United States. That that is what um, the First Amendment is all about. But you can't bomb buildings. And and I, I think that's a, that's a distinction that's easy for most of us, most of us to draw. However, one of the issues in, in the trial is well, why would someone blow up a building? I mean, wh- why would he do this? Wh- what would make someone do this? And, and that was part of the defense was, you know, Tim McVeigh's a good guy. He's a veteran of the Gulf War. He, uh, you know he served his country. He won a bronze star. Why would he do such a terrible thing? And and I think the government had the opportunity to put him in a a clearer context of why he would do such a thing. Uh, and and they did a little of that. I mean, the, the, as you point out, he had some literature with him very intentionally uh, in his getaway car, including excerpts from the Turner diaries, including excerpts from the Declaration of Independence, but. That has always been very much downplayed in how McVeigh has been portrayed, and I think that's too bad. Ignition
1: sequence start. Welcome to Government's Future Frontiers. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, one on which we've come to depend for almost everything we do, space. Space. We'll be examining the challenges, the opportunities, the pitfalls, and the benefits of all things space-related. Government's future frontiers from Deloitte Insights. Remember to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life... What would you do with it would you go for a run would you sleep in would you read would you go hang out with a friend a lot of us spend time wishing we had more time you actually can create more time for yourself it's by figuring out what's important to you making that a priority and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash lawfare. for lawfare listeners today get 20% off your delete me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout the only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout that's joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Okay. Let's talk about
3: McVeigh's extraordinary lead lawyer, Stephen Jones. <laughs> Who is he? What was his deal? What was his relationship with McVeigh?
2: Well, Stephen Jones, uh, was a, and is, and even in, t- in his eighties, a prominent lawyer in Oklahoma. He, he, he practices out of Enid, which is a, uh, Smallish city, about uh, 90 minutes north of Oklahoma City. And Stephen is a character. Stephen is someone who enjoys the spotlight. Stephen is someone uh, who has always been interested in politics. Uh, in, In one bizarre fact in his life, which I found fascinating, right after he graduated from college in 1961, he wrote a fan letter to Richard Nixon in 1962, right after Nixon had lost the governorship of California, and Nixon invited him to be a research assistant for, a couple, for, for about a year. And so Jones uh, worked for Richard Nixon when he was a very young man and moved to Oklahoma uh, to run for office. He wanted to be a Republican politician at a time when Oklahoma was still very democratic. He lost a series of elections for state attorney general, for the U.S. Senate, but, you know, he had a taste for the limelight, and uh, he was a very good lawyer uh, in most circumstances, and he was, after the first appointee to defend McVeigh, uh, withdrew because he knew people who had been killed in in the bombing. Uh, Jones was appointed to defend him and did so throughout McVeigh's trial.
3: So you tell the remark, I mean, there's so many remarkable things about Jones. One was that he really, I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but he didn't really believe McVeigh when McVeigh said it was just him and Nichols. And he, he thought, and at least he pursued a global that there may have been a global conspiracy. You talk about Merrick Garland basically gave the defense an endless, an open budget. And he spent a lot of time abroad checking into conspiracies I mean, what was, it, what was his belief about a conspiracy? What was McVeigh's view? And then I have a couple of follow-ups on that.
2: Well, I, I think it needs to be said at, uh, at the outset. Stephen Jones had a really hard job. You know, I, I, as someone who's covered a lot of trials, you know, we, I, I think sometimes people get too involved in critiquing the lawyers when the facts usually are, are, are the most important part. And Timothy McVeigh was totally and incredibly guilty in this circumstance.
3: And they had just tons of really probative circumstances. Oh, God. I mean,
2: it, totally. You know, this this was uh, not quite a slam dunk, but close to a slam dunk. Plus, McVeigh is saying to, to Jones, from the day he started representing him, I did it. I'm proud of that. And I didn't do it with any help, except... Terry Nichols. Now, at that point, I, I think we need to recognize Jones, Jones had a, a difficult job. For reasons that remain somewhat opaque to me, Jones didn't believe McVeigh uh, in that he didn't have help. He thought this was too complex, too elaborate, a, a conspiracy that McVeigh and Nichols could have pulled it off on their own. And so, as you point out, he traveled around the world, and he also repeatedly confronted McVeigh with his belief that McVeigh was lying to him, that there was a broader conspiracy. Uh, and, and McVeigh kept telling him, no, I did this just with Nichols. And that led to uh, a lot of conflict between the two of them, and ultimately a, a total
3: breach. Total breach. Total breach. You know, basically up to and leading and in the middle of the trial. So, talk about the lie detector test that he gave his client. Is this fact? Is this known, or does this come out of the Texas records?
2: It, it, it is known that 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 Jones gave him a, a lie detector test. The details uh, came out,
3: but and, you actually and, have the transcript. I, of the I test. have
2: the, the the you know all all the paperwork associated with it, and the the results were peculiar and and, and somewhat contradictory. Uh, McVeigh was registered as having told the truth about his own involvement in the bombing, but there was some indication of deception about whether he had help from others. He denied he had help from from others, but that that registered deception, which led which which contributed to Jones' skepticism of his story. If I could just mention one piece of evidence from the case, which is one very important reason why I think McVeigh was telling the truth in that he had no help is, and and this was, you know, a really terrific piece of work by the FBI. When they searched Terry Nichols house, they found a phone card and, and, you know, Jack, I, you, you're a very youthful man. You probably don't remember this. <laughs> I wish. Uh, but uh, back in the nineties, when you wanted to make long distance calls, um, there, there were these phone cards that you know, when, you, when you wanted to make a long-distance call, you put in a code and you could pay for the call that way rather than putting a lot of coins in a payphone. Some of your viewers might want to Google the words payphone to see what that is. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, they're, they're available in antique stores all over the United States. Jones and uh, McVeigh and Nichols bought a phone card from the spotlight magazine right wing magazine where they that, that they used to read and they thought that way they could keep all their calls secret it had precisely the opposite effect all of their calls including where they made the calls from were recorded on this phone card which they deposited money in so they could keep making calls on the calls are like a diary of their activities in the months leading up to the bombing. Every call was analyzed and there were no calls to foreign terrorists. There were no calls to other terrorists in the United States. The the phone card is great proof that the two of them acted alone. And Jones, when confronted about the phone card says, well, I, I just can't explain it. And I think the reason he can't explain it is because there's no explanation except that there was, that it was just the two of them in in the conspiracy.
3: So I came away from the evidence you presented, including the the lie detector test. But despite that, thinking that it was McVeigh and Nichols and no one else, just as basically the story was told in the trial. And I take it that's, my sense is that's what your view is as well. Exactly. But there was conspiracy theory in the air (laughs) and- You talk about a blunder that in the indictment and talk about what the stories were and how it impacted the trial.
2: Well, you know, what's interesting about this, Jack, is that the conspiracy theories fit the political agendas of people outside the trial and and with, with with extraordinary precision. You know, the right didn't want to acknowledge that McVeigh was a right-wing extremist. They they wanted to dissociate him from, from that. And there has been a long-term effort, uh, including a congressional effort, uh, investigation by a, uh, frankly, eccentric congressman named Dana Rohrabacher from California, attempting to prove that McVeigh and Nichols uh, had ties to Islamic radicals, including Osama bin Laden. Total fiction, as far as I'm concerned. But quite clearly an attempt to distance McVeigh from the, from the right, fr- from, from the right wing. There's been a parallel effort on the left where, uh, you know, McVeigh, you know, circulated at gun shows. Uh, on the eve of the bombing, he made a phone call to a uh, right wing compound in Oklahoma called Elohim City, trying to reach someone he met at a gun show. The left has often tried to prove that McVeigh and Nichols were part of a broader right-wing conspiracy that shows the pervasiveness in their view of uh, right-wing violent tendencies. Both the left and right are wrong about this. There was no broader conspiracy, either on the left or on the right. Um, You you mentioned a flaw in the indictment. Uh, As a former federal prosecutor, I could certainly... Identify with this effort Uh, in the indictment, which was reviewed by Garland and everyone under the sun in the Justice Department. There were certain boilerplate language that said, "I'm I'm not paraphrasing, but I'm sort of paraphrasing." McVeigh and Nichols and others, known and unknown to the grand jury, which is uh, uh, just in in all conspiracy indictments and. Jones used that language to say, "See, the federal government even acknowledges there were unknown players in this conspiracy. The the government did no such thing, but Jones, you know, using the tools he had available to him, you know, made trouble for the government in that regard.
3: And was his idea to cast doubt on McVeigh's responsibility? Was that was that the idea that there's that the government is hiding something? There was this is this part of a larger plot? McVeigh wasn't really as responsible. Was that the the aim? I'm not sure. Well,
2: see, that's where Jones's defense, and including, it sort of fell apart, was, well, even if you believe that McVeigh had ties to Islamic radicals or leftist radicals, he's still the guy that set off the bomb. So what difference does it make? that that was one of the many problems with his defense but again i, I don't i i, I want to be careful before but before i blame jones for too much because he had a client who was proudly guilty and it's difficult to defend someone who was proudly guilty
3: right i mean there's basically nothing he could do in my opinion i mean and the government put on a fairly tight case as you show and they relied on the overwhelming circumstantial, but overwhelming circumstantial evidence, and there basically was nothing they could do. They tried lots of things. You were critical, I think, slightly critical of the deep push they did in trying to figure out the necess- whether there was a necessity defense. McVeigh wanted to claim a necessity defense, which is preposterous here. But but they spent a lot of time on that. They looked at ev- they looked at everything.
2: Well, you know, th- th- this defense was also what happens when you give lawyers an unlimited budget, which Stephen Jones had. He spent ultimately about $10 million uh, on this defense. And, you know, this is $1995. Uh, There were 18 lawyers. There were uh, many investigators. As you pointed out, Jones traveled all over the world. I mean, this was a a spare no expense defense. and, and and, And McVeigh seeing how many lawyers he had and seeing the resources that were deployed, developed a sense of entitlement about, about what he, you know, any silly idea um, could be indulged, including the idea that that he was somehow obligated uh, to bomb the Murr building, which was truly ridiculous.
3: So basically McVeigh is found guilty. Nichols is found guilty you have a wonderful account of the trial, but and of the death sentence deliberations, and McVeigh is sentenced to death, and Nichols is not sentenced to death, and he's executed by lethal injection. And at that point, the book shifts to lessons. Basically, did I miss anything? Is there anything in between that and the lessons? I can't
2: remember. <laughs> that, that's the gist. Yeah, I think that's okay, right. Yeah, yeah this. Okay. There, yeah. there's there's all sorts of bi- bizarre behavior, including McVeigh wanting his remains to be scattered on the Oklahoma City Memorial with the chairs, which indicates just how perverse his imagination is.
3: Well, and also something I just remember that was a wonderful detail is that he was in this Colorado maximum security facility right next to Kaczynski.
2: Um, he was. And, and- uh, Yousef. Yeah, Ramzi Yousef, who bombed the World Trade Center. The three of them were on Bomber's Row, yeah.
3: They were on Bomber's Row there, and they, it seems like they hung out together a little bit. And you have this- you have an account of Kaczynski's view of McVeigh, which is morbid, but interesting.
2: Right. And, and McVeigh's view of Kaczynski, uh, which I think tells you more, their views of each other tells you more about themselves than it is about their powers of observation, but it is interesting. Um, Well, you know, McVeigh um, was always trying to portray himself as the smartest guy in the room. And, Ted Kaczynski, whatever else you think of him, was a is a highly intelligent person, and McVeigh felt obligated to tell his lawyers, you know, Kaczynski isn't as smart as he thinks he is. Kaczynski is, I think, a legitimate lone wolf. I mean, there's a guy who came to his political views entirely independent of any political movement that any of us would, would be familiar with yet when he talked about, because when he talked about McVeigh, he tried to make McVeigh's views sort of similar to his own uh, which, which they weren't. But Kaczynski was considerably more generous about McVeigh than McVeigh was about
3: Kaczynski for what it's ever, for what it's worth. I mean, he said he was a smart guy and not as bad as he seems basically. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I guess if you're the kind of guy who who has killed people with bombs, you are less likely to judge people harshly who kill people with bombs.
3: Right. Okay, let's talk about lessons. And you have a long closing chapter on the lessons. And one claim, I think, there are several claims. One is we, someone, the Department of Justice, American Society, the government, made a mistake in 95 in making McVeigh seemed like an isolated event unconnected from these broader trends. And somehow our errors there through various causal means ended up basically ended up in January 6th. I mean, there's a series of causal arguments, but that's one claim. So just did I get that right?
2: Yes. And, and I think you you left out the crucial intervening event of 9-11 in 2001. Right. Good. Which... Okay in part, just because of the enormous magnitude of 9-11, you know, 3,000 dead as opposed to 168 dead, you know, created the impression that the definition of terrorism was Islamic terrorism. And um, the federal government took its eye off um, the danger of right-wing uh, extremism. Part of that was understandable. Part of that was a conscious and I think malevolent attempt by some people on the right to neglect and intentionally neglect the threat of right-wing extremism. That, that, that was a problem, but the combination of the understandable reaction to the magnitude of 9-11 and some political use of it led the country to really forget about right-wing extremism for a considerable period of time.
3: And one more thing, as you point out, is that the number of domestic terrorist attacks, right-wing terrorist attacks, any terrorist attacks, domestic terrorist attacks, dropped after 9-11 for whatever reason. So not only did there seem to be this larger or different threat on the scene, but for a while, the threat really did appear to recede. Is that fair?
2: It, it, it is fair. But, um, and, and, you know, the, the people who have studied this, you know, have pointed out that right-wing extremism... Rises when there are democratic presidents. The the anger at democratic, you know, democratic control of the federal government is something that, and and this happened with Clinton, and it happened with Obama, and it's happening with Biden. You know, Trump is a is a separate category because there there were so many on the right who were sympathetic to him, uh, on you know, in in the extremist right who were sympathetic to him, but you know, the fact that right-wing terrorism goes up under democratic administrations is something that has been borne out in the previous 30 years.
3: What should we have done? I mean, this is a large, serious problem, Uh, domestic terrorism generally and right-wing domestic terrorism in particular. And, you know, your basic, I think your basic argument is, that we should have been dealing with this problem more aggressively and more explicitly in the public realm, and that the failure to do so basically invited January six. Is that a fair characterization?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to be too, you know. I, well, however, January six that for me, January six had a had, had a lot of had a lot of causes. But you know, I, I think just in terms of what could and should be done, you just have to start with aggressive law enforcement. And, and and proactive law enforcement. You know, I give the FBI tremendous credit for what they did in Michigan to stop the plot, you know, the, the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. There was criticism. There were there there were claims that the undercover informants were actually the people who were instigating that plot. Um, there was a hung jury initially, although the people were ultimately convicted in, in the Whitmer plot. So, you know, I don't consent that, that this is easy. But, you know, the kind of vigilance that we exercise uh, with Islamic radicals um, after 9-11 is the kind of vigilance we need for, the, for these sorts of plots today. And, you know, I, and again, I don't minimize uh, the difficulty, especially now that, you know, the, the, the tool of choice is no longer the improvised bomb, which is an actually very complicated and difficult way to engage in terrorism. It's not easy to, fortunately, to set off a bomb. But if you look at how easy it is to buy an AR-15 and then shoot up a synagogue in Pittsburgh or a church in South Carolina or a Walmart in in, in uh, El Paso, all of that is... is is the kind of right-wing extremism that we need to be aware of it's very hard to stop that in advance but that that's the kind of vigilance we need
3: and my sense is i don't think you you certainly i don't think you disagree with this in the book my sense is that today the fbi realizes this and is acting on it chris ray has spoken out against this and it appears as if we can hardly tell because all we see is terrorist events not happening so often or typically, but it appears like the FBI thinks this is a serious problem and is devoting serious resources to it. Is that your sense? Absolutely.
2: And I, and I give Ray considerable credit for speaking out on this subject. Um, just to go back to what we said earlier, what we were talking about earlier, um, I think Garland uh, has missed an opportunity. Uh, to talk about this threat in in a more exp- in in a more explicit way, you know, he has gone back to uh, the model of uh, the McVeigh and Nichols case, where you know he only talks about these cases on the day of their indictment and the day that the jury comes back. You know, I think the Attorney General, uh, unlike the mid level Justice Department he he official he was in 1995 has a lot more ability to use a bully pulpit and talk about the threats that the country faces. And I, I think Garland has erred too much on the side of caution and silence in uh, this regard.
3: So I'm sorry to defend Merrick Garland so much, but... Um,
2: I, I, there's something wrong with defending Merrick you, Garland. You,
3: you interviewed him. You I interviewed did. him. You basically say he wouldn't even mention January 6th. He didn't even I didn't, talk ba- about it.
2: I, not basically. He, he literally said, I am not going to use the words January 6th.
3: Yeah. So let me make a defense. You know, Merrick Garland is the first attorney general after the Trump administration. We lived through four years of, in many ways, extreme politicization of the Justice Department, especially by the president, but also to some extent by people in the Justice Department. Garland is on the scene in part to try to restore the notion that the Justice Department is politically independent and not politicized. That's one point. Second point, so that's the context in the background, and we were all very critical of the Attorney General in the last administration speaking out about ongoing investigations. The other context is there are ongoing trials, and you're right that he's not legally prohibited from talking out, but it it just seems to me that he's the last person in the world, given those two contexts, one, ongoing trials about extremely highly political issues in the administration after the Trump administration. All of those strike me as reasons for him in this context to be doing exactly what he has been doing. So why am I wrong? I,
2: I, I really do think you're wrong. You're wrong on that. Um, you know, the, the issues are of a sufficient magnitude and a sufficient generality that it is possible to talk about the threats to democracy of uh, trying to overthrow elections. You don't have to talk about the Proud Boys. You don't have to talk about the Oath Keepers. You don't have to use defendants' names. But this is a continuing threat to the country. You know, John Ashcroft, uh, you know, not my favorite attorney general, but he talked about terrorism a lot. And That was a continuing threat to the country. I think he was perfectly appropriate to to do that. I think, you know, other Democratic attorney generals have talked about civil rights and and the need to enforce the civil rights law, even though there were civil rights cases pending. Um, I I don't think you need to name defendants or interfere with the the jury system, or you, you will be interfering with the jury system if you engage in uh, continuing discourse about the threats that the country faces. You know, he's the chief law enforcement official in the country. And I, I think its it would be perfectly appropriate for him to talk about these issues.
3: Okay, let's assume it's appropriate. And and it certainly wouldn't be illegal. And certainly if he said it the right way, it wouldn't even be unethical. And if, and if he said it did it the right way, it wouldn't violate Justice Department norms, as long as he didn't comment on ongoing cases. But what affirmative good would it do? I mean, you've got the FBI director speaking out. You have the president, as you, as you document, President Biden speaking out about this issue quite a lot and quite aggressively. What is the affirmative case for the attorney general weighing in on that as well? You
2: know, attorney, I mean, it, it, he's not just some guy. I mean, you know, he's got uh, 90 U.S. attorneys. They, they, in, they have issues about how they allocate their resources. You know, if you have an attorney general who is talking, as some have, uh, about the war on drugs, they're going to bring narcotics cases. If you have case attorneys general that talk about Islamic terrorism, you're going to see Islamic terrorism cases. I think the attorney general has influence. And if he's talking about uh, cases about threats to democracy, there there's going to be more law enforcement attention on it. I, I, I think it is not, you know, it, it, it would have a positive, good effect on how the Justice Department allocates its resources if Garland spoke about these issues more.
3: Even discounting what would clearly be political blowback for him talking about ongoing matters?
2: You know, I, I, I think, I mean, th- this is a broader political discussion, but th- the notion that If Merrick Garland phrases something exactly the right way, Republicans won't criticize him. I think that's a fool's game. You know, it's not about pleasing the Trump supporters who are going to be outraged no matter what. It's trying to do the right thing, independent of what the the, the criticism you get is.
3: Okay, we'll leave it there. Jeff Tubin, thank you so much. Jack, my pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Max Johnston of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
1: Sequence start. Welcome to Government's Future Frontiers. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, one on which we've come to depend for almost everything we do, space. We'll be examining the challenges, the opportunities, the pitfalls and the benefits of all things space-related. With- Government's Future Frontiers from Deloitte Insights. Remember to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode.